All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read the first nine verses, and that'll be what we consider this morning. So Paul writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So as we now get to chapter 3 here of 1 Corinthians, the last time we looked at it, we see Paul was turning the corner in his argument about the divisions in the church. He's still in that first major section of his letter to the church in Corinth where he's dealing with their divisions. He's, he's going through the issues that Chloe's household has raised to him, and he's dealing with the first one. And, and in chapter 2, <clears throat> he had turned the corner in his argument regarding the divisions in the church. So after showing how uh, the message of the cross is foolish, how the people of the cross are foolish, and how the messenger of the cross is foolish, Paul then goes and he's eager then to, show, to point out that the gospel is not foolish, though. Even though the world sees it as foolish, it is indeed a true wisdom. It is a real wisdom. But he, as he pointed out last week, it is a secret and hidden wisdom of God. It is not a wisdom of this age. It is not something that the philosophers or the smart people of this age could figure out on their own, but one that has to be revealed by God. It is a wisdom um, that is revealed by the Spirit through spiritual words. And if it were a wisdom that was available to the rulers of this age, then the rulers of this age would not have crucified Jesus because they would have recognized him as the Son of God. They would have recognized him as the Messiah, and they would not have crucified him. But again, he points out, and he's very um, zealous to point this out, that this is a spiritual wisdom, not like ethereal or immaterial or invisible. It is a, a wisdom that is governed by and characterized by the Holy Spirit because it is imparted by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit imparts it through the Word. The Holy Spirit imparts it through the apostles and the prophets. It is discerned by the Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit in order to understand the message of the Spirit. And it is something that the natural man does not understand. He does not perceive spiritual wisdom. And the reason is because he's not spiritual. He is a natural person. And it is a wisdom that only spiritual people can grasp through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because as Paul says at the last verse there in verse 16, we have the mind of Christ. Now, we don't have the mind of Christ because we're somehow better than everyone else in the world. We have the mind of Christ because the Holy Spirit imparts that mind of Christ to us. 
Now, I want to just spend a very short period of time here just going over this concept again that Paul brings up. We looked at it a little bit last week, but this idea of spiritual versus fleshly. It's equivalent to the discussion that we looked at a little bit last week of this age and the age to come. So if you recall, Paul is very big on this two-age paradigm, this two-age way of looking at things. This age represents everything we see in the material world. It it incorporates everything in this world, everything that is of the flesh. It is characterized by natural, the the fleshly as such. This age or uh, the the natural world is is, uh, seen as temporal. So it, it exists in time. It decays. It is decaying. It is fading away. It is natural. It is not anything to do with the realm of the spirit. So it passes away. In the Old Testament, this age was associated with the period of promise. It was what the Old Testament people looked at as this age was when they were promising the things that were to come. The things that were to come were supposed to be in the age to come. Now with Jesus coming, we see that there is again an overlap. The age to come has sort of broken through, has sort of penetrated into this age. So you have an overlap of the ages, which is why we express this by terms like the already and the not yet believers are already of the spirit but we're still dwelling in natural bodies we still die we still decay we're still subject to the whims of this world but we are our citizenship is not of this world that's what paul says our citizenship is in heaven where christ dwells the age to come is characterized by the heavenly or the spiritual so as such it is eternal It does not suffer the passage of time. It is unfading. It does not fade away. It's incorruptible. And it is indeed spiritual. That is governed by the Holy Spirit. Now, as I said in other contexts, and uh, just mentioned a few moments ago, I were following my notes, I would have just known that I just kind of went over this, but so be it. You're going to get it twice. The coming of Jesus inaugurates the fulfillment of, of this this period of fulfillment that we see. So the age to come, as I said, with Jesus comes into the world now. So we have an overlap. We have an already not yet. The kingdom has been inaugurated. Christ is king. He rules and reigns at God's right hand. But his kingdom is not yet present or visible in this world. That's why you get all the parables that Jesus tells about how the kingdom is like a seed, how the kingdom is like a mustard seed that grows into a large tree, how the kingdom of God is like a piece of leaven that you put into a lump of bread and it spreads through. It starts off small and grows big, um, but it is not going to be consummated until the return of Christ. So we're in this period of overlap, this period of anticipation, this period of sort of spiritual angst in a way, you know, because it's like we want to be where Christ is, but we're not there yet. And the only way we get there is we either wait until Christ returns, if we're so lucky to be here when he does return, or we have to die and be with Christ, and then we'll be reunited with everybody when he returns. But as we come into this passage this morning, I mention all this again because this is very important for understanding Paul. You have to understand this two-age mentality, this two-age um, paradigm, this two-age kind of way of thinking that Paul, he uses it all throughout his letters. 
And it's sometimes we'll say this age, the age to come. Sometimes we'll refer to spiritual versus fleshly like we see here. And it comes into play in our passage this morning because as the, uh, as the Corinthians who are saints, remember we, we belabored this point at the beginning. Paul calls the Corinthians saints. He says they are sanctified in Christ. The problem is they're not acting like it, right? They're not acting like saints. They're not acting like they're sanctified. They are acting, in, in, in reality, they're acting very fleshly. They're acting like natural people. So Paul has to rebuke them. He, they, are, they are supposed to be people of the age to come, yet they're acting like people of this age. So Paul rebukes them for this inconsistency in their behavior. And that's kind of what this passage really is all about. So now looking at the, the first point in verses 1 through 3a, the first half of 3, uh, Paul begins here with that word but in 3.1. It's a contrast to what he has just said previously. So if you look back at verses 14 through 16 of chapter 2, Paul says there, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So here Paul makes this contrast between the natural person and the spiritual person. The natural person hears the word of the gospel, the message of the gospel, and says, this is stupid. <laughs> I, I don't, this message, I don't get it. It's dumb. I'm going to reject it. But we have the spirit, he says, and we discern these things. And we judge these things to be true because we have the mind of Christ. That is the contrast that Paul then comes into chapter 3 to say. So as he says, we have the mind of Christ, he now, goes, he now brings us back to bear on the Corinthian situation where he says in verse 1, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. You are spiritual people, but I cannot address you as such. Uh, but as people of the flesh, as natural people, as infants or babies in Christ. And that's a, I mean, that's a pretty stinging rebuke, right? You, know, you ought to be acting like a Christian, but you're not. And I have to address you as a, a worldly person. Christians, I have to address you as non-Christians. That's a rebuke. Paul would love to address them as spiritual, but they're acting carnally. Some of your translations may say carnal. It just means fleshly. Carnal, you are people of the flesh. And that word carnal translates the Greek word sarkinos, which is related to the word sarx, which is the Greek word for flesh. And it means belonging to this world or not under the control of God's spirit. So you are carnal means you are acting as if you belonged to this world. You are acting as if you did not belong to God. And I think if you have a New International Version, it kind of gets this idea the closest when it translates that word as people who are still worldly. It says, I have to address you as people who are still worldly. And I think that's a very good kind of um, translation of that word. It gets the idea across as to what Paul is trying to get here. 
Now, 1 Corinthians 3.1, you may or may not have heard of this, but this is sort of a classic proof text for what I think a wrong teaching, but the teaching of what some have called the carnal Christian. Have you heard of that teaching at all, the, the carnal Christian? Um, this goes back to a controversy in the 1980s. So what is that, about going, going up to 40 years ago now? So still within most of our lifetimes, right? The controversy in the 80s over something that was called easy believism versus lordship salvation. So the easy believism crowd thought that as long as you made any kind of profession of faith, any kind of indication that you made a profession of faith, you were in. Okay, so they believed once saved, always saved, which is kind of a perverse way of saying perseverance of the saints. But they said, well, you know, Johnny, he made a profession of faith when he was 13 years old at a Christian camp. And even though he's acting like he's in the world, he made that profession of faith way back when he was 13. So that's a good profession of faith. You're in. You've got the fire insurance. You've got the get out of hell free card. You are golden as long as you make that profession of faith. Or, or Billy, he walked down an aisle at, a, at, a, at an altar call and he gave his life to Christ. Now, I know he's, he's not at church this morning because he was sleeping off a bender, a three-week bender that he was on, and, and he's you know, living with a woman that's not his wife. And, but he, made that, he, he walked the aisle. He made that altar call. So he's, he, you know, we, we have to honor that profession of faith. So that, that group, the easy believism group, wanted to validate any and all professions of faith for all intents and purposes, even though those people live like they were in the world. So these are the carnal Christians, right? They will call them the carnal Christians. You are sort of like a lower level type of Christian. You haven't yet achieved sort of that second level where you've kind of, you know, you've, you've taken Christ as Savior, but you haven't made him Lord of your life. That's the second level, right? And that's when you get up to the second level. You make Jesus the Lord of your life, but you're still down here. You're okay. You really should be up here. So we want to get you from down there to up here. But as long as you're down there, you're okay. The other side will fire back and say, we don't make Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord, right? He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, right? We don't make, we don't make that. We don't make him that he is lord of our life if we profess faith in christ he becomes lord of our lives so they would call these carnal christians they would just say you're not really christians you're nominal christians you're christians in name only you're false believers false converts because you haven't been properly converted you haven't really grasped the idea of what it means to confess jesus christ as lord and savior so, in other words, they're just not true Christians. There's, no, there's not like three groups of people, right? You've got the true Christians, you've got the carnal Christians, and you've got the non-Christians. It's just Christians, non-Christians. Now, Christians can obviously act worldly. We don't deny that. So Paul is not here introducing a new class of Christian, the carnal Christian, nor do I think he's calling the Corinthians' profession of faith into question. Remember, again, he starts off the letter. You are saints. You are sanctified. You are in. He's just rebuking them for acting like the world. It's like you are saints, but you're not acting like it. <laughs> you are sanctified, but you are acting as if you are worldly. 
Because you see that two little word, that little two letter word in verse one, as. I cannot address you as spiritual people, but as infant, uh, as people of the flesh, as infants of Christ. Three times that word is there. It's a comparison word. So he's not saying that they're not Christians. He's saying, just saying you're not acting like Christians. You're behaving as if you are fleshly. That's a big difference. He's not saying you are fleshly. He's saying you're behaving as if you are fleshly. Huge difference. And he refers to them also as infants or babes, babies. The word literally in Greek there means like a you know, goo goo gaga type baby. You know, I mean, like Noah, right? Not like, like a five-year-old, more, I mean, like a, like a newborn. You are acting like babes in Christ. Now, what characterizes a baby? What is a baby like? What's that? Well, I don't mean, what, what, what are they like? What's that? Helpless is one. What else? How smart are they? I mean, I know we all think our babies are smart and our grandchildren are geniuses, but really, how smart are they? I mean, they're intelligent, but I mean, how wise are they? Not very, right? What's another word we use for it? Immature. Right, they are immature. A baby, you know, what, what does a baby do when he doesn't get what he wants? <laughs> right, okay. What, what, is, what do I do when I don't get what I want? I cry, I, yeah, I act like a baby. <laughs> Sometimes I'm immature. Babies act immature. They are not developed. They are small. They need development. That's what the author of Hebrews says. You can keep your finger here. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 5. Several books over to the right. Because the author of Hebrews says this to readers to his readers when he comes to a particularly kind of tough doctrine. Now, Hebrews is sort of high level, okay? There's a lot of high level stuff in Hebrews. And when the author of Hebrews gets to a particular section, he, has to, he kind of rebukes the readers as Paul rebukes him here in chapter 5, um, starting in verse 11. Now, right before that, just a little bit of context, he's talking about Jesus, how he is the great high priest. He is better than all of the high priests in the nation of Israel because he is not of the Levitical priesthood. His priesthood is not descended from Levi. It is, his, his priesthood is from Melchizedek. And you're like, who's Melchizedek? Well, you see him very briefly in Genesis 14. He's a very mysterious figure. But in Psalm 110, the psalmist David says, you are a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then Paul, or, well, I don't know if Paul wrote Hebrews, but the author of Hebrews says in verse 11, about this, this idea of Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Now let me ask you, if I called you guys dull of hearing, would that be a compliment? No, no. You're not dull of hearing. They're, they're dull of hearing. Yeah, no, okay. You may be deaf, that's different than dull of hearing. <laughs> For though by this time you ought to be teachers, 
You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Okay, you can go back to 1 Corinthians. So the author there is, look, I want to teach you about all these wonderful things about Jesus being the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, but I can't because you're not up to that level yet. You're still drinking milk. You're still on formula. I want to feed you steak and potatoes, but you don't have teeth yet. <laughs> you have to gum your meat. You're still drinking milk. You're still on formula. You're still on pureed peas and carrots and whatever nasty Gerber's baby food that you feed kids nowadays. I can't, I can't teach you the things you need. You need milk, not solid food. And that's Paul's point in verse 2 of chapter 3. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Now, there's nothing wrong with not being ready for solid food yet, right? I mean, again, a child, a baby, you don't, want, you don't feed him prime rib. You feed him milk because that's all he can digest. But what do babies do eventually? They grow, right? Then you, you wean them off the milk and you give them real food so they can digest the real food, but they need that milk early on. So he says in verses 2 in, in, in first part of 3, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. And even now, this is the rebuke, even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. So you're still babies. <laughs> That's what he's saying. It's like he says, even now you're not yet ready. You cannot digest the solid food. And it's not the fact that they are babes in Christ that's the problem. It's the fact that they're still babes in Christ that is the problem, right? You wouldn't expect a new Christian to understand every point of doctrine, right? That's, there's nothing wrong with being a babe in Christ. Everyone was a babe in Christ, just like everyone was a, a physical human baby at one point. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just when you continue to stay like a baby, when you're, you know, again, if you're a parent and you don't teach your children how to live in the world, they become dependent on you yet at an old age. And we're kind of doing that in society even today where children are living with their parents well into their 30s. It's like, kick them out. Get them out into the world. They need to, they need to live. They need to spread their wings and, and fly. They can't, they can't do that when they're at home. And you, every time you turn on the news and something bad happens, what do they do? They, they cry like babies when they don't get their way, right? It's like, oh, someone got elected I didn't like. Wah! You know, they cry and whine. And the rest of us are like, oh, okay, we'll just deal with it. Wait four years, we'll, we'll vote again. But parents expect their babies to grow. If we saw a 12-year-old in a stroller holding a bottle, we would think that their parents are very, very weird. And something very, very seriously wrong with that child. And the same thing with a Christian who is not growing from milk. Some, same thing as a Christian who is not growing beyond the basics of the faith to solid food, to more deeper and more complex teachings of the faith. I mean, we believe and confess based on our confessions that the Bible is clear. But Westminster says it is not equally clear in all parts. 
So that's why we need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. You interpret the difficult portions from the more easily interpreted portions. But the point is, is when you become a new Christian, you're not expected to know all of this all at once, which is why we preach, which is why we teach, so that you grow and then you, get your, you develop your theological muscles and you are able now to digest solid food. But if you contrast here what, what Paul said with what he says in verse 6 of chapter 2, where he says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So the hidden wisdom of God is one that is for the mature. But here, the Corinthians are being immature. They are being fleshly. They are being babes in Christ. So he's like, you ought to be mature, but you're still babies. You ought to be spiritual, but you are acting like you are of this world. Now, as we move on, verses 3, part B, to verse 4. How are they acting like this world? Well, look at the second half of verse 3. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? The proof, as they say, is in the pudding. Well, here, look how they're acting. If you want to, you know, Paul says you're immature. Well, why are we immature? Well, look at the way you're acting. Look at the way you're acting. Particularly amongst each other in the church. There is jealousy in the church. There is strife in the church among the Corinthians. Now, if you remember what we said way back when we uh, started this section on divisions in the church, way back in chapter 1, verse 10 through 17, we, we said that this is something that ought not happen in the body of Christ. Within the body of Christ, there ought not to be dissensions or divisions or strife or jealousy. In fact, go back and consider what Paul says in chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, where he pleads with them, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there, is no, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united the same mind and the same judgment. So just in verse 10, he's by implication, kind of drawing out from what he's saying here, that they weren't united, that they weren't all agreeing, and that there were divisions. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. And that's the same word here in verse 3 of chapter 3, is strife, quarreling strife. What I mean is this, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Then he goes on and says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And that's the question there, right? Is Christ divided? It's a rhetorical question for which the answer is no. Christ is not divided. So why is his body acting as if it is divided? That's what he's trying to make there. The divisions in the church are the evidence that they are acting as babies, that they are acting as carnal, that they are acting as worldly. Because when you display jealousy and strife, you look more like the world and less like the church. 
You look more like everyone else in the world and less like your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And have you turn again now. Turn to Galatians 5. It's right after 2 Corinthians. So he says here in Galatians 5, starting in verse uh, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, ding, 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 jealousy, ding, 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 fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, ding, 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 envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul can't even, you know, keep going. She's like, and everything else that's like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. In other words, if you're walking by the Spirit, you don't need to have a law because you're walking by the Spirit. (laughs) Right? And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, and so on. So Paul here is very big on the concept of the battle within the believer, right? We saw this in Romans 7 and 8. We see it here again in Galatians 5. This battle between the flesh and the Spirit which wars within the believer. And here in Galatians, he contrasts two types of walks, two types of ways of behavior, or walking really is just a metaphor for our conduct. So two ways to behave. You are either behaving in a spiritual way or you're behaving in a fleshly way. Kind of sounds like what he's saying in 1 Corinthians, right? Told you, this idea of spiritual versus flesh, very big in Paul's thought. And these two walks are diametrically opposed to one another. They, they are opposed to one another. They do not, you cannot mix them. If they were a Venn diagram, they would be two circles that do not touch or intersect in any way. They are opposed to one another. Notice too how Paul describes these two walks. First, he says, works of the flesh. So walking according to flesh is not walking in the power of the Spirit. And this then produces works that are not born out of the Spirit dwelling within us. So what you produce in your own efforts are works. And earlier in Galatians, he says, no one will be justified by works of the law. Galatians 2.16, he uses that phrase, works of the law, three times in that verse. Contrast that with fruit of the Spirit. Fruit is produced in us 
by a principle of life that is the spirit dwelling within us. We don't grow our own fruit. It is a result of walking according to the spirit. It is a result of being united to Christ, being united to the true vine. The fruit is produced in us. So you have the contrast between what I do in my own power, works, versus what I do in the power of the spirit, fruit. Then look closely again at verse 20. I kind of highlighted it when I was reading through it there. But those same two words, exact same two words, perhaps in your English translations as they are in the Greek. Jealousy and strife. Strife and jealousy are evidence that the Corinthian church is walking according not to the Spirit because strife and jealousy are works of what? The flesh, right? They are works of the flesh. So they're not walking according to the Spirit. They're walking according to the flesh. And that's Paul's point. You can go back to Corinthians 3. They are of the flesh. They are behaving in only a human way. It's the question Paul asks in verse 3. is expecting a reply that is, yes, you are working, walking in only a human way. He says, um, are you... Well, sorry, let me back that up. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? The obvious answer to that is yes. Because if I continue to act with jealousy and strife, I am acting in a human way. I am only of the flesh. And then Paul brings it home in verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So here he brings it home, this whole kind of point that he's trying to drive home to them. It's like this factionalism that you have in your church where you are dividing over Paul and Apollos and Peter. uh, That is fleshly. That is what's causing the strife and the jealousy. And thus, that is fleshly. The divisions give evidence that the Corinthians are being merely human or are you not being carnal? And if you think about all of the reasons for a church to divide, dividing over pastors and teachers is rather foolish. He's going to talk about that in the next few verses. It's foolish because who is the head of the church? Don't say the Pope. Who is the head of the church? Christ is the head of the church. Jesus Christ, it is his church. Remember, I emphasized that way back in the beginning. When he, he doesn't say to the church in Corinth. He says what? To the church of God, which is at Corinth. You are not that denomination or you're not the Corinthian church. You are the church of God that just happens to be in the city of Corinth. Jesus Christ is His church. He is the builder. And we bear His name. Right? We don't... We don't bear the name of any other church leader. Now, some of us will say, well, no, well, you know, some of us say, well, we're Calvinists. Like, well, Calvin would be rolling in his grave if he heard and knew that we were calling ourselves Calvinists. He's like, I'm, you know, I said, no, I just, I follow a Christ, okay? I'm just telling you what's in the Bible. And if you follow him, okay, you are a Christian, right? You know, we don't call ourselves the Paulian church or the Petrine church or the or the Methan church, or whatever. We are the church of Christ. We are Christians. We bear His name. 
So now Paul goes on to show why divisions over pastors, teachers, is such a foolish and fleshly thing to do. Look at verse 5. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And that, that phrase there, through whom, speaks of instrumentality. Paul and Apollos are not the agents of your believing. They are the instruments through whom you believed. Christ and the Spirit, they are the agents of conversion. They just, in God's providence, used Paul or used Apollos as the means through whom they believed. So he says, so look, I may have started this church. This is Paul, right? I'm speculating what Paul would say to them. I may have started this church and Apollos may have come over and moved the church from point A to point B. But you know who we are? We are servants. We are servants. Paul, Apollos, Peter, they're all servants. And the word there is a familiar word. We get the word deacon from it. Diakonos is a waiter, a servant, someone who serves tables. So getting all worked up over servants is like going to the movies and dividing over the trailers, <laughs> right? You start arguing over the damn trailers in the movies and the movie hasn't even started yet. Or it's like going to a concert and arguing over all the warm-up acts. Or like going to a football game and dividing over the halftime entertainment. None of that is, you know, the halftime entertainment, the trailers, the warm-up acts to a concert are, they're just there to set the stage, <laughs> Right for the main act. So it highlights a problem in many American evangelical churches too, right? Because why do you go to church? Some people say, I go to church because I like the music. The music uplifts me. I love the praise band and oh, and the way they sing. And then that one soloist, oh man, she's got a great voice. I love the music. Or I go to church because I love the children's programming. I can bring my kid drop them off and they come back and they're all happy and they've got little coloring pictures of Daniel and other, you know, Moses and they learn so much. I just love the kids' programs. Or I go because I like the preacher. Now, by the way, I would be flattered if people came to this church because they like me, but I am not the reason why people should come to this church. None of these reasons are good reasons to go or not to go to church. We go to church to do what? Worship. Who do we worship? God. The triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We go to exalt the name of Christ. We go to receive the means of grace. You know, we go to worship God, but in the end, what we re realize is that God gives us way more than we give to Him in worship through the means of grace, through the Word being administered, through the sacraments being administered, we receive grace from the hand of God. Now my job as a minister is to be a servant, as Paul says here, through whom God administers His means of grace to you. So I'm here to administer the Word of God to you. It's even in the Word, right? Minister. I'm a minister. It's just a Latin word for servant. I am a servant, serving up a meal each and every week for you so you can receive blessings from God. Now, if I do that well, 
that's well and good. If I don't do that well, it's still probably not a real reason to leave a church, right? Unless I'm not doing it right. That's different. If I'm not doing it right, then you have every mean, every reason to critique me and leave this church. But I am not the main attraction. God is and Jesus is. And moreover, Paul and Apollos are serving the task that God has given them. And we see that in verse 6. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth or gave the growth. So every Christian is a recipient of a spiritual gift. We looked at that when we saw Romans 12. But even ministers and pastors, teachers have strengths and weaknesses. Some of us are better at preaching the word. Some of us are better at evangelism. Some of us are better at shepherding and, and, and meeting the needs of the people. But each of us has these strengths and each of us are used by God to administer to the church. So Paul here is a planter. He is one that goes from place to place, plants the seed and, and starts a church and gets it up and running. Apollos was a waterer. He was one that would probably be better suited to go to an already established church and help it to grow and to continue to minister the word to them. But whatever the given strengths or weaknesses of a given minister, the growth doesn't come from us. Farmers, you know this, right? Every spring, you do what? You plant seed. Every fall, you harvest the seed. In between the fall and the spring, you water, you fertilize, you make sure the weeds don't grow, you care for the land. But all of that, does that make that seed grow? Can you make the seed grow? Can you sit there and you know, with, by mental power, make the seed grow? No. The growth comes from God. God is pleased to use planters and waterers in his kingdom, uh, building work, but make no mistake, the one who plants the seed and the one who waters the seed have no part in making the seed grow. So then Paul goes on in verses 7 and 8. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. How about that for a confidence-building statement? I am nothing. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Emmanuel Reformed Church. I'm your minister. I am nothing. <laughs> the one who plants in the water, waters is nothing, or is not anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So in other words... Again, to go back to the divisions, you know, people were dividing over Paul and Apollos. Paul says, look, we're on the same damn team. We're working together in God's field. We're on the same team. We are of one purpose. Not, we're not working at odds. I, you know, Paul's like, I have no problem with Apollos. Apollos has no problem with me. We are on the same team. And again, God is pleased to use people in the building of his kingdom, but he is not obligated to. We share an unspeakable privilege to take part in God's kingdom building program. But make no mistake, it is all about God from beginning to end. Ultimately, we are servants. We are nothing. In a very real sense, we're like the servants in the parable of Jesus that he tells in Luke 17. You don't need to turn there. I'll turn there and read it to you. But in Luke 17, uh, verses 7 through 10, um, Paul, or Paul, Jesus tells a parable. 
He says, well, any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Again, very humbling passage, right? Jesus like is, he's the master. We're the servants. Now he is gracious and he is pleased to reward us because that's what we see here, right? Each one will receive his wages according to his labor. But as the master, is he obligated to reward our service? No. Because we are only doing what is required. That's what Jesus says in Luke 17. The, the servant who comes in from the field should not expect to be pat on the back or pet on the head. It's like, oh, well done, good and faithful servant. You did, you know. Now, Jesus, again, is graciously, he will do that. But really, you know, the servant, the master could just say, all right, you're done in the field. Now come and do, give me supper. And when I'm done, after you're done serving me, then you can go and eat. That's kind of the, the relationship here. We are only doing what God has called us to do. And any reward we receive is not earned. It is not merited by our service. It is graciously given by God. And he is gracious to reward us. And that's the point. He does reward us according to our labor. A concept which we will see later in chapter 3 here. But then look at verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. All right, question time. There is a theme word in that, in that verse. What is it? What's repeated? God, right? We are God's fellow workers. Paul, Apollos, me, other ministers. Are, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's workers, God's field, God's building. God, God, God's. Paul, Apollos, other ministers are fellow workers. We are the hired hands called to work in God's field. You all, church members, the people of the kingdom, are God's field, God's building. But all of it is God's. As we're going to see in the next section that we're going to look at, Lord willing, next week, Paul's going to carry this metaphor of a building into that next section. But the point here he makes here is that Divisions in the church, by doing that, you are just now, you're just confirming this idea that you are of the world. You are not acting like your profession of faith. You're not acting like you're saints. You're acting like you're of the world. You're acting carnally. You are acting inconsistent with the fact that you are God's. So in a sense, he kind of saying like, knock it off. <laughs> you ought to grow up. You need to be, you need to stop being immature. You need to stop uh, acting like babies. You need to grow up and realize that these divisions are foolish because in reality, the, the things you're dividing over are not important in God's labors. You're dividing over the servants. You're dividing over the people who work for God. And that is, that is the part that is foolish about all of this. Well, as I said, Lord willing, again next week, the 12th, um, by the way, did you realize we had a palindrome day earlier this week, right? 12 to 21. 
So one, two, 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 one. Uh, anyway, but next week, not quite a palindrome day, but still a bunch of ones and twos there, 12, 12, 21. We're going to look at verses 10 through 17 of chapter 3.